Across the globe, 2,800 dedicated soldiers and civilians at 23 locations in 11 time zones stand ready. This is SMDC. Welcome back to the High Ground Studio at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, home of U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm Carrie Campbell. For Episode 5, we've got a full lineup for you, including... A two-pack of stories about Kwajalein Atoll. A very interesting piece about an SMDC soldier's 36-year service history, which is perhaps one of the most eclectic career paths that any space soldier has taken to get to SMDC. And a really interesting cool jobs interview with one of SMDC's senior civilians in the Space and Missile Defense Center of Excellence. All that and more, so stick around. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies? All right, here we are at episode five, which will first hit the net in March 2021. Gary, thanks for joining me for your first swing at podcasting. My pleasure, Ron. We have a lot to get through today, so let's get moving. We publish dozens of articles, videos, and photo sets each month. These in particular just happen to be a few of our favorites. As mentioned in the intro, we have two stories about Kwajalein Atoll and the Ronald Reagan Ballistic Missile Defense Site run by SMDC's Technical Center. To begin with, and for those of you who don't know, Kwajalein Atoll was part of the pivotal Marshall Islands campaign in the Pacific during World War II. Our own First Sergeant Steve Segan provided us a piece on that, so let's take a listen to find out more. If you visited Kwajalein Atoll today, you would find one of the Army's most remote and important locations. The U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command's Technical Center's Ronald Reagan Ballistic Missile Defense Test Site. This unique Marshall Islands facility provides 24-7 space operations to maintain space situational awareness, ensures the protection of key space assets, and is the hub of ballistic missile and scientific testing. Quaj, as it's known, is also the world's largest coral atoll. Surrounded by clear blue water, warm breezes, and smiling people, it's a true South Seas paradise. But in January and February of 1944, Kwajalein was the center of Operation Flintlock and a critical stop in the World War II island hopping campaign across the Central Pacific. For 25 consecutive days, the marshals are ripped by Army liberators operating from Tarawa, softening up Jap defenses and destroying landing strips. To help soften the defenses, the atoll was pounded by air and sea for days before the invasion force landed. January 31st, 1944, American forces landed simultaneously with the 4th Marine Division in the north and the U.S. Army 7th Infantry Division in the south. Retired Army First Sergeant Jack Warner, a veteran of the landings, talks about what it was like during the assault. Kwajalein was an interesting experience because I, I feel now that it was like I would see a movie documentary. I saw the attack by our fleet, by our planes, dozens of battleships and destroyers pumping shell after shell. 
seemed so overwhelming, the force that we applied to this tiny island, not more than maybe two miles each way. Once ashore, the assault units found widespread devastation from the pre-invasion bombing and shelling. Smashed seawalls, uprooted trees, demolished buildings, and scarred pillboxes were everywhere. Although outmanned six to one, the Japanese were prepared for the Allied assault, and there was bitter fighting in an attempt to slow the American advance. But they were no match for the landing force. With lessons learned from the earlier landings of Tarawa, the now more experienced American troops, quickly overcame the enemy forces and captured Kwajalein and its surrounding islands on February 7th, after eight days of fighting. Of the 8,100 defenders, only 230 were left alive after the battle. Like it was in 1944, Kwajalein is still an important place and a critical resource in the Pacific. To learn more about this battle and the war in the Pacific, visit history.army.mil. This has been an SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Thanks for tuning in. That was really well done, wasn't it? Oh, it sure was. First Sergeant Sagan really does a nice job with those. And man, does he just have a great voice to boot. And next is a piece you put together, Ron, also about Quaj. But this is a far more modern story about Quaj and the Ronald Reagan Ballistic Missile Defense Test Site run by SMDC's Technical Center. Right. I just wanted to mention that written piece, rather lengthy, as you know. For everyone's awareness, Carrie does most of our copy editing on our written stories, and I just love the, as we say, mom look when I hand her a 1,500-word article. Anyway, it was uh, put together to coincide with the one-year anniversary of the Marshallese government restricting travel to Quaj and its other territories due to COVID-19. The challenge was the previously scheduled missile defense test called FTM-44, where an ICBM representative target was scheduled to launch toward an area defended by a U.S. Navy warship. But the story was less about the test itself than how SMDC, the Kwajalein Garrison under Installation Management Command, and the U.S. and Marshallese governments worked out a solution to safely permit test and garrison personnel to come on the island. Didn't SMDC utilize a facility right here in Huntsville to minimize the number of personnel who were originally scheduled to go to Quaj? Right, you're talking about Rock H as we call it here, and how it was reconfigured to house personnel involved with the test. Basically a most unusual but highly successful telework arrangement, which was the first time anything similar had been done there. Anyway, it was an interesting piece to do that talked about that, the rigid quarantine and testing processes to reassure the Quaj people and government it was safe for them, and how test missiles aren't really built to be on long-term hold for more than half a year. Anyway, I hope folks will head over to our webpage or divots to check that out. And I'll keep going here since we uh, still have two more big pieces to bring you. Next up is another piece we mentioned earlier, and it's a retirement interview Sergeant First Class Ronstad put together about Lieutenant Colonel Scott Noss of the 1st Space Brigade. Normally, retirement interviews are not that fascinating, but oh, this one certainly is. Noss initially went from defending the nation from under the surface of the ocean as a submariner to providing space-based capabilities to the warfighter all over the globe, and a whole lot in between. It's a bit long, but definitely worth a listen. Released from assignment and duty, and on the date following placed on the retirement list, the people of the United States express their thanks and gratitude for your faithful service 
Your contributions to the defense of the United States of America are greatly appreciated. Lieutenant Colonel Scott P. Noss, a plans and operations officer with 1st Space Brigade, retired last month with 36 years of combined enlisted slash commissioned service in both the Navy and Army. He delivered a heartwarming speech at his retirement ceremony at Peterson Air Force Base that encapsulated his career and what meant most to him during his service. Colonel Eric D. Little introduced him at his retirement ceremony. Because I have known uh, Scott for a few years now. Uh, and, and I can tell you from the heart, he's a guy that I respect and he's a guy that I admire. And, and before we recap, what, what I will tell you, you will see is a, is a truly remarkable career. It was a career that took him far and wide across the globe, beneath its seas and into its skies, literally. From submarines to aviation to space, NASA's constant drive for adventure and travel gave him a career many would envy. So I joined the, I joined the, the Navy, um, like Colonel Wills said, when uh, Jimmy Carter was president. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. Gas was below 75 cents a gallon. Interest rates were, I think, 12 to 14 percent. Um, grew up in a small town in Medina. Had a, I, I want to thank my mom and dad who are currently deceased. Stay, stay deceased too. <laughs> but I, I want to thank them for just giving me a stable environment. Uh, you know, when you have that security, you can go out and take chances. And January 13th of 1979, I entered the delayed entry program into the Navy and started my adult career. I uh, went to boot camp in September. Um, and after graduating from basic training, he became a machinist mate. So a machinist mate is affectionately called a snipe, and that's kind of their uh, endearing term. There's the snipes, uh, uh, but there's a number of MOSs that fall under that category. Machinist mate, boiler techs. Uh, what we do, what they did is um, work on the propulsion equipment for either submarines or surface ships. So all the boilers, all the piping, almost all Navy ships run on the steam plant whether it's nuclear or conventional power. So machinists may kind of run from the generation point to the propellers. So all the trim and drain, all the uh, supply, steam supply, all that stuff uh, taken care of by machinists mates. By the time it was time to go to a ship, I was selected for a boost, brought an opportunity for officer selection and training. So what that program is, is it's really designed to help strengthen your kind of core math skills, science skills, English. So it's it kind of a college prep course. And so I was selected to that and ended up going out in uh, San Diego. NOS then subsequently received a Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC for short, scholarship at Miami University in Ohio, and was on track to graduate as an ensign, but got into some trouble his senior year. I, I kind of realized the mistakes I'd made and said, you know, I wanted to start making sure I do everything I could to try to make myself at least marketable for officer again at some point. So submarines were kind of the creme de la creme of the uh, Navy at the time. So I chose uh, sonar tech on submarines. <laughs> was selected and uh, went through sonar school in San Diego 
and then I went through um, advanced school, sea school, what they call sea school in the Navy, up in uh, Bangor, Washington. I got assigned to the USS Ohio SSBN 726, and once I completed my sea school, was assigned to them. Um, they run what they call Blue and Gold Crew, and so I got assigned to, I believe it was a Gold Crew, and within three months of joining the ship, we uh, did a SSBN patrol, and we kind of spent 90 days underwater, and I kept, kept us from bumping into things. Right before his scheduled second tour at sea, Noss was selected for Officer Candidate School and shipped off to Pensacola, Florida to pursue his dream of commissioning as an ensign, which would happen in January of 1988. I uh, uh, went through basic flight school as a naval flight officer, so got kind of a backseater, navigator type thing. If you ever saw Top Gun, I was, I was in the pipeline to be Goose at some point. No, 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 there's two O's in Goose, boys. And then uh, I selected P3s, which is anti-submarine warfare, and then went through uh, Naval Flight Officer School, and then P3, what they call the P3 RAG, Replacement Air Group. So that's where we learned platform-specific techniques for uh, flying in a P3. NASA's naval career was exciting and rewarding. Some of the highlights include... I think flying P3s, the flying in P3s is the kind of unique opportunity. And well, I was stationed in Hawaii for, for, for my first tour as an officer. And out at Barking Sands, Hawaii, they have a, a, a torpedo test range. So you actually get to drop a torpedo on a sled, which is pretty cool. And as a uh, mission commander for a, for a P3, it's actually pretty pretty cool stuff to, to be able to do that. My one tour, I was stationed on the USS Kitty Hawk for a couple of years and being able to, you know, you see Top Gun, the shooters, but I didn't do that. I did Officer the Dick, which is you're in charge of driving the ship. And it was a pretty awesome event when you're, you know, up there on the bridge directing the, the ship where to go, watching flight operations, watching the jets take off. Um, and then refueling, either refueling or replenishing. You know, you've got a uh, supply ship within you know, 200 yards of you and you're, you're just cruising along and you, you're bringing over stores and fuel and all sorts of stuff. And it's pretty, can be pretty harrowing if the seas are a little rough. It can be pretty exciting to do those things. So a lot of, a lot of good port calls, Hong Kong, Diego Garcia, Japan, a number of places in Japan. And then I was stationed in Iceland for a year and a half as a uh, kind of a staff officer at an anti-submarine warfare operations center. Got to do a lot of exercises with uh, our NATO partners in, in Europe. Norway was a big one, the, the French, and then uh, the English anti-submarine warfare teams. After being passed up for Lieutenant Commander, 04, Nas got out of the Navy and went into construction. But most importantly, he... Lived life and uh, went, uh, I think one of the highlights was when I was, just before I got out of, the, out of the Navy, I gave my life to Christ, uh, became a Christian, and during that time out of the, na out of the Navy, uh, was involved in two church plants in Wisconsin, so that was that was exciting. Help a couple churches get get up online, and, and they are still successful uh, as of today. So that was pretty exciting. 
Unsatisfied with civilian life, though, Nas decided he wanted to get back in the military. And this time around, he went Army. I think, I, obviously, 9-11 uh, happened just after I got out of the, out of the military, so it was kind of a, a wake-up call. Once I had gotten out of the Navy, that door kind of closed. I had 14 and a half years worth of active duty, so I, I just still wanted to try to finish up my, my uh, 20 years, either reserve side of the house or active duty. The, you know, the, the, the Army has a program called a direct deployment program, which for a number of years, I had no clue, but a friend of mine, Dan Zimmerman, who who, who was a, uh, a senior major, just and got just got selected for lieutenant colonel, was a an ROTC instructor at Ripon College, and he told me about the uh, direct deployment program with the Army back in 2005, and so I was like, no, well, I might as well try to support the war effort and you know try to help myself finish up my career, put a package in and. About six to nine months later, July 4th of 2006, I was pinned on captain as a United States Army Reservist with uh, UW Oshkosh uh, ROTC unit. And it was just, it was an amazing event because I never thought I'd uh, be in the Army coming in. I, I branched as an engineer, which really fit with what my civilian career was doing. So it, it was kind of a good fit and it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to uh, start off my career that way. So. Um, that's kind of how I got back into the Army. Within nine months of joining the Army Reserves, he deployed to Iraq and found himself at a detainee facility near the Kuwait border. We were kind of there at the height of the detainee. We had 25,000 detainees at Camp Luka. That was a little nerve-wracking at some point. And then it was kind of fun. We did some construction out from the camp, and it was just interesting to see the different the different cultures, you know, we coordinated some, some purchases of tile and things like that. And just, you know, just experiencing that within the context of being an Army officer and understanding that while it's a dangerous mission, it's also kind of an exciting mission in the sense that you're, you're dealing with a, a different culture and trying to build that trust and being able to interact with them on a professional level where, they, where they're willing to help you and work with you. After a second deployment, this time to Afghanistan, Nas returned home and found out about Army Space by way of the Army's Space Cadre Basic Course in 2017. He then took an active guard reserve position with 1st Space Brigade and was there for four years until his retirement. He credits his time in Army space as a great way to round out his career while learning about the facets of the complicated world of satellite communication, missile defense, and war. I think the biggest thing I've, I've gotten out of being with, uh, with SMDC is just how much, how much not only the Army, but the entire military uses space products and how important it is that we kind of treat the uh, space domain as a warfare domain because without without the assets that we have in space and being able to access those 24-7, we are kind of in a hurt locker if we don't keep those, those lines of communication open and being able to utilize all the uh, assets that we have available to us. I love, I love the, the technical aspects of it. Fortunately, I was able to go through a lot of the classes and just Space is cool. I mean, you, it's it's really cool to learn about how things work in space and, and kind of the, the inherent difficulties of putting up satellites, putting 
you know, utilizing the payloads that are associated with those satellites and understanding how all the different mission areas can utilize the space products that, that are available to them. I think the biggest, the biggest hurdle is letting people know what there is available to them as they go out into their uh, area of operation. Because I think a lot of non-space individuals don't know that there are a lot of space products available to them. When asked what the parallels were between his time in the Navy versus his time in the Army and civilian life in between, Nas had this to say. I think my Navy days were much more social-oriented than professionally-oriented. I was a you know, young junior officer and kind of carefree and you know, junior, junior Navy flight officer, which is a dangerous combination of terms in and of itself. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. And then, you know, I think taking a step back as a civilian between, between the Navy and the Army, realizing that the, the military culture is just one that is just, you miss it when you're out of it, you, you really kind of miss it. The Army, seeing how as, as staff officers, how you support the commanding officer to get a mission complete. And just the, the team aspect of the Army is invaluable in trying to get things done, that you're, that you're willing to put away your own pride in order to get best for, for the team and for the, uh, for the mission. So, I mean, professionally-wise, the Army was much more beneficial to me than the Navy. But, it, you know, obviously I learned something in each of them, but, and I wouldn't trade the experiences for anything. Nasa's final words in his retirement ceremony speech emphasized the need to foster relationships with those close to you. My only recommendation as I, as I say farewell is that cultivate the relationships, don't take it for granted, and just love on each other. It's just a, it's a wonderful thing. So, thank you. Okay, so that's actually the bugle call for mail call. For us, that means an opportunity to answer listeners' questions here on the podcast. What have we got in the mailbag this time, Ron? Oh, this one is so in your lane, Carrie. For those of you who don't know of Carrie's many responsibilities, she's also our primary social media manager here at SMDC. So, Carrie, although this was a mailbag question, I know you and the soldiers in public affairs here get this question all the time. How can an SMDC unit set up an official social media page for their command? For a social media presence to be official, it has to meet certain Army requirements and be registered with Army social media. Each social media platform needs an official Army website and contact information. There are several unique security training certifications that must be completed and renewed annually by admins. And the most important step will be to contact me so that I can guide you through the process. So for non-SMDC units, they go to their brigade or higher public affairs office. And for SMDC units, they can look you up on Global, right? That's right, Ron. If they are having trouble finding me on Outlook, they can always go to our webpage and email the webmaster. I'll be the one to get it. Too easy. Moving on to the highlight of our podcast, our Cool Jobs segment. This time, Ron got to talk with Mr. Richard Yu, a member of the Senior Executive Service and the Space and Missile Defense Center of Excellence's CDID director. Stay tuned to learn what his cool job is, as well as what an SES is and what one does for the federal government workforce. Ron, go ahead and play that for us. Hello. 
Hello and welcome to another High Ground Special Edition podcast. I'm Ronald Bailey. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Mr. Richard Yu, Director of U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command's Capability Development Integration Directorate, or CDID, which falls under the SMDC Center of Excellence. Mr. Yu is a member of the Senior Executive Service and has more than 30 years of operational and acquisition experience in government civilian positions with the Army, Air Force, Missile Defense Agency, NATO, and the Office of Secretary of Defense. Mr. Yu, thanks for taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule to speak with us about your cool job. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First and foremost, what's cool about your job and your role as the CDID director? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that I'm part of a developing the future of the Army and the Joint Forces. To me, that's pretty cool because, you know, I like building things. Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm an engineer uh, by trade. And, and uh, what cool thing about that is that we're building things, not just uh, uh, equipment or material material type of things, but, but rather capability, a capability that, that our Army soldiers use today and tomorrow into the future. So I'm part of that enterprise, that building the future and shaping how the Army is going to meet its mission uh, inside of the Joint Forces. So when you say capability, does that mean developing the material or the stuff that makes us more capable? It's, it's not just the material development, uh, but, but rather it's a capability development, which means that uh, you have to couple the soldiers with the material solution together inside of the architecture and inside of the formation to be able to deliver that capability. So we call that capability development. Now we don't do material development, but, but we do develop the requirements that drives the material development being done at the acquisition uh, executives, the, the program executive officer and project management office, that chain of command. They're the one who develop the uh, material that we need, but we develop everything else around it so that we can have trained, organized, and equipped soldiers to fight in the Joint Forces. What was the path that led you to your current job, which is also a senior executive service level position? Well, first of all, there's uh, no uh, one path that leads to uh, where I am. So, so for me, uh, I got recruited right out of college by the uh, Air Force recruiter as a civilian. And uh, the, the, I went through uh, different program offices. Um, so went through the acquisition uh, in the Air Force world, uh, including taking some key position in the AWACS program office at the Hanscom Air Force Base. Uh, from there, I also went to, uh, became the chief engineer for F-16 program office. And of course, uh, from there, I also spent some time in the MDA, Missile Defense Agency world, uh, where I was part of the, the ground-based mid-course defense capability. So I also had the pleasure of uh, working as a deputy project manager for FAD, that's the Terminal High Altitude Aerial Defense. From there, uh, also, uh, I went to uh, NATO uh, as an acquisition executive for the strategic systems at the NATO capabilities. I also spent some time at the uh, Office of Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. And then from there, I actually spent some time uh, at the uh, United States Strategic Command as a founding member or plant holder for the uh, Joint Functional Component Command for Integrated Missile Defense, or commonly known as the JFCCIMD. So I spent about 10 years there as uh, the first J-8 
and then uh, first the command, command's first technical director, and then bounce back and forth between TD plus the JA work as well. So, so uh, uh, the, my current position is a senior executive service, Tajere. Uh, uh, so it just happens that, that this seated is uh, is a coded as an SES position. That's how I got here. Okay, the senior executive service. Some of us in the civil service might understand what that is, but that's not something that's particularly well-known outside that community. What is the SES and what do those people do? Are they kind of like the civilian equivalent to general officers? Uh, senior executive service, or SES, was established by the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978. So that law, that statute, uh, established the SES within the federal government, not just DOD, but, but uh, within the, all the federal government to, to ensure that the executive management of the government of the United States is responsive to the needs, policies, and goals of the nation and otherwise is of the highest quality. So members of the SES serve in the key positions just below the top presidential appointees. So they're the basically go-between, uh, between political appointees that are come and go based on the administrations and the rest of us uh, in the federal workforce from GS-15 and below. This is largely, largely true also within DOD as well, except we also have general officers, as you mentioned. Uh, general officers, career officers are career military professionals serving in a similar function as the SES. It's the go-between the, uh, the bigger body of work and we have in the civil service as well as military service and the political appointees like the Secretary of the Defense or Secretary of the Army and so forth and so on. The go uh, is the, the executives working in between the political appointees and the, the workforce to make sure that the stability and execution of the uh, executive mission uh, is done correctly. So, so in the practical term, SES is a grade level just above GS-15. Uh, just 15 or equivalent uh, at demo as well, and that's at the 06 level equivalent. So you could say the SES is uh, equivalent to uh, general officers uh, for uh, ranks. And for a protocol perspective, uh, it is uh, treated at the uh, general officer rank as well. What is it about your specific duties that excite you? You know, what motivates you to want to get up in the morning and go to work? Uh, so, so yeah, every day that really gets me up uh, uh, in the morning and get me excited is that, that every day I get to work with uh, like-minded people. And that drives the way that I work, and that, that, that's the reason that motivates me to get up in the morning, if you will. So sometimes making history is, is a big deal uh, in our world. For example, most of us can't tell what we were doing when uh, the Armstrong uh, stepped into the moon uh, or when the Berlin Wall fell. So, so we, in our capital development world, likewise, now I was the team that working with the people, like-minded people, in de delivering the ground-based mid-course defense system in 2004, it's the first. We made history in make, delivering the first capability to defend ourselves against ICBM threats. So the exciting part is that I'm surrounded with like-minded people with the one aim to develop the capability for the Army for this our mission, and that's really exciting. Sir. Through the course of all of our careers, we face challenges. What kind of challenges did you have in your career and how did you overcome them, more importantly? That's a very difficult question. Obviously, we all have challenges in our lives and in careers. 
And for me, I usually bend my challenges in two categories. Challenges with me, is something that I can control, and challenges with others or environments around, the, uh, around us that, that I don't have control over. Uh, so one of the wise counsel that I received earlier in my career is do the best you can with things that you have control over and try to minimize effects on things that you have no control over. So with that in mind, biggest challenges in my career has always been rooted in my readiness to take on the challenges of my job and my environment. By this, I mean, uh, I don't mean that I'm not, I wasn't ready or I'm not ready to do or qualified to do my job, but by no means that. What I do mean is that am I ready and able to go beyond what is expected of me in delivering capability to the mission? And of course, the right attitude. All right. For someone listening to this right now who may be starting a career with the civil service and they're saying, I'm listening to this guy and, and I, I'd like to be like him someday. I'd like to achieve what he's done in my own career. What advice do you have for them? So, so the first thing is that I'm reminded of a common saying that uh, if you do what you love, you won't work a day in your life. So my suggestion is uh, find your passion uh, in your career and stay on it. If that's difficult to do, uh, I would say that, well, at least don't do stuff that you hate. Secondly, I recommend everyone to always be ready. Uh, earlier I talked about be able and ready to take on the challenges. Uh, that's something that you can control. Uh, this includes how to be able uh, in terms of uh, education, training, and attitude, and be able to uh, apply those based on the authority and the environment of which they were given. Don't measure success based on promotions or what grade you are. Because I think that's something, you know, promotion is not something that you can do. Others do it for you or others select you to a new position, but you cannot promote yourself. But you have control over your attitude, your experience, your ability to drive towards your passion, towards servanthood to this nation. Thank you, sir. Any parting comments, you know, anything about why your job is so special to you and what it's like to work here at Space and Missile Defense Command? What, what, what's cool about my job is, is, is that we're at the cusp uh, in our history to make space more relevant to the Army than any time before. And we're in the, we're in the middle of that and changing that narrative for the Army to bring the space bring the high altitude capability into the main formation. We are in the midst of uh, making the history for the Army. And, and to, uh, to top it off, we got some great professional here in the SNDC, basically family uh, around us with a like-minded mission to get at that history-making venture. So that makes my job really cool and really thankful and grateful that I get to serve in this uh, command because of that. That was a fun piece to put together. He's really a great person to engage with and is really able to break down a lot of what he and his workforce do, even to the point where this old air defense guy can even understand. Trust me, Ron, after working with you for the last three years, I know all about breaking it down to your level. Um, ouch. I'm just messing with you. Aw. Well, that about does it for this month's episode. What do we have for a few parting shots for folks to be on the lookout for until we talk with them again next month? First, it is that time of year again for SMDC NCOs to compete to join the Sergeant Audie Murphy Club. 
We encourage all those interested to contact their chain of command for the particulars. And as always, we'll be publishing something about those who make it to the top. I know we have a couple of things in the hopper for Women's History Month, so be sure to follow our social media for some great products on that. General Karbler is also expected to talk with U.S. military cadets for West Point's Founders Day, March 27th. Our own rocket man, Jason Cutshaw, has been following the SMDC Gunsmoke J satellite program pretty closely here over the last several months, and I believe one or more of those go on orbit this month, so stay tuned for those updates and much more. Hey, we're done. Carrie, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Ron. I invite everyone to tell their friends and coworkers about the podcast and check out our webpage at www.smdc.army.mil for more great stuff. From the High Ground Studio at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm Carrie Campbell. Thanks for listening. This is SMDC.